Kids think they're so smart, you guys. Kids think they're so smart. From a young age, we're all convinced that we are each the smartest person alive, right? Like, I remember when I was in grade four, and I got put into the Roadrunner group in math class. I, if I could have made a shirt or had like a name tag or business cards, it would have just said something like, I'm Albert Einstein, y'all. Because that's how I felt about myself. at the point. I remember being so proud and completely convinced that I was going to Doogie Hauser my way through college by the time I was like 12 years old, right? Fourth grade was for suckers. I was in the Roadrunners, and life was about to change. Because even if we don't have that kind of egocentric thought pattern to us naturally when we're born, there will be more than enough well-intentioned people around to make us believe it eventually. From our formative years into our teenage ones, we develop a sense of what we want out of life. And our culture impresses upon us the idea that only truly you know what's best for you and what you should do best to get it. Like little kids have any clue about any of that stuff. Teenage me had a crush on a girl that happened to be my best friend's sister. That was complicated enough. One day we were all out at A&W for lunch together and I decided that I wanted to impress her, try and get her attention in some way, shape or form. So my teenage hormonally overrun brain was whirring out of control, trying to figure out what I could do to get her attention. And then it hit me. I could prove both how funny and tough I was in one fell swoop. One single move. And so there we were sitting at the table together, and I pulled the tomato out of my teen burger, put it on the table, and I smashed my head through it. <laughs> what? Who does that? This guy. Because it was everywhere, and I was so proud. And it didn't work out between the two of us in the end. Who could have seen that coming? And folks, that's why teenagers don't get to vote and don't get to set public policy. Because the reality is that most humans have absolutely no idea what's best for them, even as they get older. As I'm a fantasy football writer in my other life. And another guy who's a fantasy football writer, a real expert, a guy named Adam Levitan, has a podcast called Establish the Run. And people we can presented with all kinds of facts but eventually wind up with, as he puts it, Team IKB. I know better. We all think we know what's best for us, right? That we know more than experts. That we know more than friends. That we know more than our parents. We live in this wonderful little delusion that we aren't deluded. The reality is, though, that the longer we keep pushing our way on towards the way that we want in the belief that Team IKB is the best team to be on, the more we quietly discover how much we really don't know and then are left to make a decision. Do we carry on in the delusion? Build heavier, stronger walls around our ego constantly to protect ourselves and our processive sweet delusion of our own overwhelming wisdom that everybody would see if they could just get past themselves? Or do we admit our ignorance and look for a better way? Jesus came to tell the world about a better way, about who we actually are, 
about who we can actually be, about what is actually good, and about what God, who God actually is. And they killed him for it. This passage this morning is certainly about the Spirit and the work that the Spirit does for us, the promise of the Spirit fulfilled from the Old Testament. Maybe just as much, though, this passage is about the vindication of Jesus and his kingdom by the work of the Spirit, a call to finding reality as it truly is, not just as we see it or how it's presented to us. The coming of the Spirit is a sign that Jesus was indeed right. So what does the Spirit show us about Jesus and life with him as his followers? I think the first thing it shows is that being right doesn't mean that life will be easy. In verses 1 to 3, we see Jesus talking to his disciples after breaking some bad news about the upcoming difficulties for him and them, and telling them it would be up to them to tell the rest of the world his message because he wasn't going to be there anymore. So he said to them, all this I've told you so that you will not fall away. They'll put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. As one of my kids would put it, well, that's not good. It's bad news. The all this he was told them, that he was going to be killed for the cause and that it would be up to them to carry on the work, was what was started there. Now, I don't know about you guys, but the bad news that the best man that I ever knew would be killed for being right isn't exactly the kind of encouragement I would be looking for to keep from falling away. Some of us like a hug with bad news. Some of us like a drink with bad news. But I guess Jesus, in his wisdom, went the route of, well, this is going to hurt, but it's for your own good. Now, I think our minds, when we read this bad news, goes instantly to the, anyone who kills you will think they were doing God a favor. And granted, that's pretty bad. But for the disciples, though, the idea of being put out of the synagogue may have been even worse. That was the promise of a societal death that would just keep on giving forever. They would be excluded from their connection to God in the temple. They'd be excluded from societal celebrations and rituals and the only faith that they had ever known. They'd be shunned by their family and their friends. They'd become social and religious outcasts in a society in which they were already outcasts, and they wouldn't have that social safety net to lean on and find its community anymore. That was bad news on more levels than we really know how to comprehend in many ways. But Jesus encouraged them to them, though, as we'll see as this goes on, was that they needed to understand that those super negative outcomes weren't showing that they were necessarily in the wrong throughout it. In fact, they were going to get help along the way through the Holy Spirit, and in the end, they'd be vindicated for everyone to see. If there's one lesson I've learned over the past decade that's been more helpful than just about anything else that I've learned, it's that bad circumstances don't necessarily mean that you did something wrong. You can make all the right decisions for all the right reasons and still wind up with a proverbial kick in the teeth. All you can control are your own decisions and honing your process for making those decisions. And then just make peace with the fact that the future and what comes from those decisions is completely out of your hands. There is not a single one of us that can control enough variables 
and plan well enough to guarantee that we'll get the outcomes that we want, no matter how much we plan or how much we stress about it. Jen and I have been trying to go on vacation for about 15 years now, unsuccessfully in many ways. We've talked about going to Norway, and we've done the cycle of plan and save and plan and save and plan and save, but the fridge needs to be replaced and the roof leaks. So, we thought, it's fine, we'll switch to something cheaper, like Vegas. You can get a flight out of Regina to Vegas pretty inexpensively these days. So we switched to that, and we did the plan, save, plan, save, plan, save, plan, save cycle. But, the van got written off and the new roof leaks. We have replaced three roofs in the last ten years at countless tens of thousands of dollars. And ultimately, we wind up with something like two nights in Minot at a seedy motel. <laughs> it never works out. It doesn't matter how much we plan, it doesn't matter how much we save, it doesn't matter how much we care about it, it doesn't work out. Did we do something wrong? No. Like, was there anything that we could have done differently, other than maybe investing in Apple and Amazon as toddlers? I don't know, probably not, because it's life, right? Life happens. That's the way things go. There will be times in life you do all the right things for all the right reasons and wind up with terrible results you never could have considered. Don't let circumstances crush you when there's hope on the horizon through the Spirit. That's part of what Jesus was promising his disciples and ultimately us in what he called the advocate or the comforter in some translations, the Holy Spirit. When people live in deception, they wind up hurting everyone else around them. Jesus carried on in verses 3 to 4, explained to his disciples that those who would attack them will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you'll remember that I warned you about them. Now, Jesus draws a pretty clear line here that bad things happening to the disciples wouldn't mean that they're wrong, so they shouldn't get discouraged. But Jesus also draws a similarly strong line in saying that those who would hurt them succeeding in doing so doesn't mean that those people were in the right. Amazingly, being the victor does not mean that God is on your side. Who knew that bad things could happen to good people? <coughs> Job. Right? Who knew that evil people could get the upper hand and win and not actually be right? Literally anyone who has ever studied world history. The biggest problems in human history have come when people who are deluded into believing that they're right and that it's God's will for them to make those who are wrong suffer for it. Bathing dirty deeds in holy water is really bad news, kids. We have got to be unbelievably careful to be sure that we live faithfully as disciples and not oppressively in self-righteousness, ignorance, like the teachers of the law did to Jesus and his disciples. Because living a lie is never the way of Christ. We've got to live faithfully in truth and wisdom through the leadership of the Spirit. Knowing what's good, knowing what's true, and living wholeheartedly into that reality. Now, I've been a part of church meetings and provincial conferences at a national level for like 15 years now. It's funny how the people who know me from all over the country truly know me. 
I have a habit of finding the empty table at the back of the room where nobody is and just sitting alone. And the folks who know me, they wave, they say hi, they'll stop by for two minutes of catching up, and then they realize if they sit at the table, silence. That's the rule. I made it, we keep it, it works. Some of Jen's most cherished memories as my wife are watching poor, well-intentioned souls thinking they're doing me a favor by sitting with poor, lonely old me in the corner and engaging me in meaningless, endless small talk. As my eyes look everywhere else around the room, I become more and more cold and distant and disinterested by the minute. They engage me because they think they're doing me a favor, but they prove quickly they have not ever known me. They may even think they're doing the Lord's work. But living in delusion or living out of ignorance never leads any of us to good places. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to comfort the disciples while they struggled with his death and departure and to lead them into the next stage of life that was coming their way. God offers us comfort through the Spirit in difficult times as well because whether you're right or wrong, bad times come for all of us. But keep in mind... What we want isn't always what's best. Amazingly, our thoughts and feelings can be deceptive. Who knew, right? We might actually be self-deceived at times. Just because you believe something strongly doesn't make it true. Just because you feel something wholeheartedly doesn't make it right. And Jesus told the disciples essentially in verses 4 to 7 here that what they wanted wasn't what's best and that God would help them towards what actually was. They wanted Jesus to not die, for them to not be harmed and shunned. They didn't care if Jesus promised that they would be better off with the Spirit with them instead of Him. But you can't always get what you want. And Jesus said in verses 4 through 6, I didn't tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I've said these things. Now at this point, the disciples didn't really even care about the promises of something better because they just wanted what they had. They didn't want a spirit that would be better when they already had Jesus with them in person. And it's kind of funny what Jesus' reaction to them was, essentially saying, I didn't let you know all this bad stuff from the beginning because you really weren't ready for it. And now that I'm going, none of you even cares to ask where because you're all so overwhelmed with self-pity and not getting what you wanted and expected this was supposed to look like. Now, we don't know exactly what the scene looked like that day for them, but given what we know of the disciples, there was probably a fair bit of exasperated hand-tossing, some shouting at the skies, Peter shouting about being misled, Thomas just shaking his head, pacing back and forth, and probably John whimpering in a corner somewhere. That's kind of the way things worked out. What they wanted was for Jesus to stay with them forever and set up his victorious kingdom in their midst then and now. And what they got was a promise that he'd be executed, that they'd be persecuted, that he was leaving, and that he'd send the Holy Spirit to be with them instead. Now, in the midst of the revelation of his suffering and sacrifice to come, they got upset that it wasn't going to work out the way that they wanted and hoped, and they couldn't have wanted what they wanted. This upcoming moment was exactly what God told Joel about when he said to Israel, I will pour out my spirit on all people. 
Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on in those days. And it's exactly what we see came to pass in the Acts 2 passage that was read this morning. Peter mentions that prophecy from Joel even. They, though, wanted a man to look at and not a spirit. There's a song called Written on the Wall by a guy named Todd Agnew. He says, I wish you still spoke through burning bushes, and I wish you still wrote on blocks of stone, because the sound of this world's deafening, and I'm having a hard time listening, and I wish your will was still written on the wall. And I think there's times that we experience that, that we wish it was easier and clearer, because it's one thing to look at a person, listen to words, and be like, clear. It's a little bit more complicated listening to a spirit and trying to discern what's good. How often, when God promises what's best, do we get upset because it's not what we want and expected? Now, I've done it before, and I'm willing to guess you have too. That you have one of those days where something goes wrong in the beginning, and then you spend your whole day being miserable about what didn't go your way, instead of enjoying everything that could have been instead. That is a suboptimal use of life, my friends. God has better for us. I used to have this terrible habit of spending my last day of vacation in sullen misery because vacation was coming to an end. Instead of enjoying the last day with the family in California sun, drinking American banana Slurpees from 7-Eleven, being warm and happy, I'd kind of quietly huddle in a dark corner and just be sad all day that it was all coming to an end and I'd have to be back in the cold again soon. It took my gracious wife, after a couple of experiences like this, to tell me how stupid and wasteful all that was for me to grow up and grow out of it. Now, this isn't some naive call to boundless optimism where every closed door is just an opportunity to open a window. Because, friends, if you're jumping out a window just because the door is closed, that's not optimism, that's dumb. What I am saying, though, is that we should let God inform us what is actually best what the opportunities are from God, rather than us just bemoaning not getting what we hope for would be the case. Because you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you might find you get what you need. That's Mick Jagger's version of the story, at least. Jesus' words are verse 7. Very truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I'll send him to you. Jesus' main point here was that leaving was the best thing that could possibly happen to them. Their worst fears were actually their optimal outcome. It's for your good that I'm going away, he said. It's not what they were hoping to hear that day after you're going to get run out of Dodge in the name of God. But Jesus told them that the Spirit, the Advocate, the Comforter, was actually far better than Jesus sticking around in their midst. It wasn't what they wanted, but it was far better than what they wanted if they were willing to listen and give God a chance. As Macho Man Randy Savage once wisely put it, you may not like it, but accept it. Words of wisdom from pro wrestling. If you don't like it, you go argue with him. There's a lot of times we just don't know what's best for us. In my younger days in college, there was a girl that I liked, and despite all my total lack of awareness and social skills, 
It was pretty obvious that she liked me too, but it never really worked out. Now later in life, when I see or hear things about her later on in life, that old Garth Brooks song comes to my mind, that sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Because I really dodged a bullet with that one, you guys. In the moment, I thought I knew what was best for me, but it is clear now I did not. You can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. The disciples only thought that they were losing things and what it would cost them, not who was coming to be with them and what they would gain through it. Life might get difficult along the way, but the Holy Spirit comes to bring peace and comfort along the road to Christ's vindication. The Spirit comes to vindicate Christ in His kingdom. A lot of times when folks talk about this passage we're looking at this morning, they think of it in terms of what the Spirit does for us. And granted, that's a good thing. There's some of that here. And I think that'll get touched on in future weeks a little bit more. But Jesus said of the Spirit in verse 8, When He comes, He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. The proving wrong isn't about petulantly lashing out in defensiveness or a game of one-upmanship. It's about proving who Jesus actually is, not who his critics crucified him as. The coming of the Spirit would lead to the vindication of Jesus Christ, because the Spirit confirms the truth about sin. It says in verse 9 that he would prove the world to be in the wrong about sin, because people do not believe in me. The teachers of the law couldn't explain how Jesus was able to perform miracles of healing and providence while seemingly breaking God's rules on the Sabbath time and again. So how did they explain Jesus' power? They said it came from Satan, from Beelzebub, from the devil, from the dark one. This offense to God's honor shall not stand, folks. The teachers called for Jesus' sinful breaking of the law and had him convicted, beaten, and killed for it. The Spirit would come to show where sin actually lies, not with Christ, but with his accusers. The Spirit confirms the truth about what is right. In verse 10 it says, It would show the world to be wrong about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. The teachers had called Jesus sinful time and again. That was their whole case that he was a lawbreaker and needed to be executed. Now, the complicated part is only those who are holy can be in the presence of God. That's exactly where Jesus was going. The Spirit was going to prove it, and Jesus' righteousness was vindicated by his going to be with the Father. And the Spirit confirms the truth about judgment. Jesus' words about his vindication wrapped up in verse 11, saying, and about judgment... Because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The teachers of the law had Jesus judged, beaten, and executed as the false king of Israel. Jesus' crucifixion seems to show that judgment was on him. Jesus' resurrection, though, and his presence with God and the coming of the Spirit shows the actual judgment is on the prince of this world, not on Jesus. Life may get difficult. But the Holy Spirit comes to bring peace and comfort along the road to Christ's vindication. So if the Spirit came to vindicate Christ, what's our part in that if we're Spirit-filled believers? 
Now, it's nice to think that we get comfort and we get guidance along the path of following Jesus when it's difficult. But what the Spirit came to do wasn't just to make us happy. We are supposed to be part of the solution, too. Our words and actions go together on a daily basis to either prove the truth of who Jesus is and showed he is, or to make it even harder for people to turn to follow Jesus because of what we do. The Spirit is alive and active in followers of Jesus to give them wisdom, conviction, and opportunity to work towards the vindication of Christ and his kingdom. But it's only as we submit to that work that we're actually a part of it. The Spirit didn't come just to make us feel better, but to make the whole world better as we await Jesus' return and the vindication that he deserves. Our lives, through the power of the Spirit, can be part of that proof every day. Now, you remember that song from earlier, wishing that God wasn't so Spirit-ish and a little bit more tangible for us, right? Like, that's literally our job as Christians, Spirit-filled believers living their best lives filled with grace, love, peace, kindness, forgiveness, and mercy are literally supposed to be the million tangible personifications of Christ to the world every day. We are the ones who make Christ tangible through the Spirit living and active in us. The point of Jesus going wasn't to have less Jesus in the world, but to have more Jesus in the world alive and active in and through us. Life may get difficult, but the Holy Spirit comes to bring peace and comfort along the road to Christ's vindication as we submit to the work of the Spirit in our lives. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of who you are, for the truth of who Christ is. Jesus, we thank you for all that you gave in coming to be with us, to lead us to you, to show us what life with you and through you really looks like. Thank you for the love, grace, peace, and forgiveness that you offered to us and that you now give us the opportunity to show through your spirit alive and active in us. Lord, give us conviction each day of seeing the opportunities you bless us with to serve you through loving others. And we pray that your kingdom would spread through the good that you do in and through us through your spirit. Lord, help us to be a people who are humble, who are open to seeing you do your good work in and through us, and whose joy and passion is fulfilled through knowing you and following you and bringing that hope and love to others as well. We entrust ourselves to your care. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.